0: We are walking through Galatians thinking about leaning into new creation, which is a way of saying there has been a change in human history that was kicked off by the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles recognize that the apostle Paul is helping us to see that even this scheme of God's, where he had intentions that started out with a promise and then the giving of the law through Moses and now the coming of Christ that God himself has implemented these new changes and you can either lean into the new changes and find yourself an emancipated person or you can do what comes very naturally to you and me and you can go back to the pre-cross days and find yourself anxious and troubled and incarcerated by your own self-preoccupation. The choice really is yours. It's ours. It comes down to what we're going to trust in. And he makes that clear today. And to help the clarity become even more pronounced, we will have a quick conversation with our Mustachioed libertarian Ron Swanson, who went to work in a factory at age five. Ron Swanson is a leader of the Pawnee Rangers, a version of the Boy Scouts. He has written the Pawnee Ranger manual. He opens the manual with great pride and holds it up to the camera. And in the manual, there is one rule you have to look closely at the rule because it is only three words long. The one rule of being a Pawnee Ranger is this, be a man. (laughs) He says, I'm very proud of this, I composed it myself. But Ron Swanson, when addressing these Pawnee Rangers on a camping trip, he seeks to reassure these young men who are under his charge, and he says, gentlemen, under my tutelage, You will grow from boys to men. From men into warriors. From warriors into Swansons. (laughs) He recognizes there is to be a metamorphosis. It's going to happen gradually. It's going to come through stages. And it has to happen under his tutelage. Under his guardianship. You go from being a boy... Eventually surpassing manhood and warriorhood into swansonship, whatever that is. Well, the apostle says something similar when he is addressing the question that comes up when people start to wonder, when earnest religious people start to wonder, when Jews start to wonder, when people have come into contact with the Old Testament. With the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all the clean laws, the ceremonial laws about you're not supposed to touch this, you're not supposed to touch that, you're not supposed to mingle with this, you're not supposed to be around a dead animal, etc. All these things you're supposed to do to stay clean so that you can come to worship. God gave these things. These things were said, like the law of the jungle, the, the cub who keeps these may prosper, but the one who breaks them will die. There's a great deal of fear involved when Paul comes along saying, You don't understand. Your relationship to this law has changed entirely. In fact, as he said earlier in chapter 3, if you want to go back, then you're putting yourself in a situation where there are no curves in the grades that God gives. You're going to fail. But Christ has already been deemed a failure for you. He's already taken the curse of the law. And so the question then becomes, as he's saying, don't you understand that God made promises? He established his people based on promise, based on his determination, based on an arrangement that he set up. He picked Abraham. Before Abraham was thinking of him, before Abraham had done anything to curry his favor, he just, him, I'll take him. And said, out of all the nations, I'm going to let blessing run wild through you. Your family tree is going to change. It's going to be a shade tree for all the nations to come. Prosperity and flourishing and blessing, he says. As opposed to curse. Is going to come through you, Abraham. It's a promise. And so the question is, well, so, wait. Wait. But God gave His law. What's the the relationship between God's promises and God's laws? Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Is God somehow like like a drunk father who gets in a drunken rage and He's really angry and in one minute He's weeping about how much He loves you, the next minute He's stern because you didn't get the glasses clean enough? And Paul says... No, they're not in opposition. They're actually teammates. One serves the other. God had this intention that exceeded anything you imagined. In fact, he has set up the law as a tutelage system. Only he's not interested in making Swansons. He's interested in making people like his son Jesus. So he says, if there had been a law that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He's saying, look, if you want to be related to the law rightly, the the thing you will realize when you're being honest about it, when you intently look at God's requirements for you, is you're going to find out that the laws of God don't have the power to make you do them. In fact, they very often inflame within you a desire to do the opposite of them. So what's the problem is, say you can imagine that God had given these laws that said something like, To live, to flourish, to thrive, you must eat kale and charred salads with beets and kombucha. And quail eggs from the shields. If you want to live, eat these things. This is the way of life. Walk in it. Now, there are some of you who find that doable. And you're like, cool, okay, I can do that. There are other people, though, like normal people. Just there are people like me who are constantly reading things. I read a lot of things, and I keep hoping that some study, that some health advisement, some nutritional discovery is going to tell me that there is a a previously undiscovered, disproportionate impact from eating Santitos and cheese. (laughs) That somehow drinking voluminous amounts of coffee reverses cardiovascular disease and prevents Alzheimer's and makes people live till they're 300. Something that I automatically already do, I keep hoping, is going to turn out to be awesome. But I keep finding, much to my great dismay, that almost nothing that I naturally do is any good for me. And that's what the law is like. I hear, eat kale. And I say, I know, but it's kale. I only have these teeth. I only get the one set. How am I going to work through it? What am I going to do with the furriness? How am I going to endure the bitterness? How can I live such a joyless existence? How can I? It sends me into the doldrums of despair to think that this is the way of life. How can I live like this? If only you could give me a law that would then... That would then generate within me new taste buds. Well then we might be on to something. Tell me to eat whatever you want me to eat. I'll do it. But right now we got a problem. You're commanding me to do things that there a part of me inside says, I'm sorry, that sounds terrible. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I hate the idea of doing it. And so Paul says the scripture declares that the whole world is prisoner of the commanding of I mean, sin. <laughs> Same
1: difference.
0: The whole world. So he says, in fact, what's happened with the law of God is that what it actually winds up doing, one of its primary uses, is that under its tutelage, it has the ministry of condemnation. Martin Luther would say it's a hammer. God's law is a hammer that's meant to pummel any edifice that you put up, that you build for God and say, look what I can do. And God says, here's my law, (coughs) smashes it. Look at this model I put together, (coughs) smashes it because the law of God is way more comprehensive than anything you can manage. That's what Paul wants to say. So by keeping the law, he says in Romans, no one will become righteous before God, but rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So we're going to talk for a second about that because the, in the Reformed tradition, and lots of Christianity has recognized that part of this is kind of complicated. When you look in the Bible, we say, do we have to keep the law? And Paul in other places is going to say, the only thing that counts is keeping the commandments. And here he's saying... If you, if you adopt the Mosaic Law, Christ will be of no value to you. And you say, well, which is it, young fellow? You wanting that I should drop? Or that I should freeze? Because if an I drop, then I'm going to be in motion. And you got to watch Raising Arizona to figure out the reference. <laughs> the way that this difficulty has been dealt with is... One, by recognizing that the law has different purposes in God's economy based on where we find ourselves. And one of the uses of the law that the Bible teaches is quite simply this use. It's the use of the law that's called the civil use of the law. Paul talks about in Romans, the end of Romans, where he basically says, the laws that the state has put in place, these are, these are good for you. And uh, if you do them, you're not going to get in trouble about anybody. You're not going to have to pay any fines. You're not going to get sent to jail. You're not going to stand before a firing squad or have to go before the hangman. You won't have to do any of that stuff. But see, that kind of keeping of the law doesn't engender any kind of righteousness. You can think you're righteous because I don't break the law. I don't murder anybody. But see, what happens is with that kind of thinking of the law, it doesn't do anything for you with God. When I was in seminary, I had a route to the seminary in Orlando where the traffic was not great. And my route shaved off a great number of seconds. I mean, minutes. Probably just seconds. But it was psychological. In being in a place where the traffic doesn't move, I had this system set up where I cut through this neighborhood. But the whole efficiency of the system meant I had to disregard the stop signs in the neighborhood. (laughs) But I had already made a determination that these stop signs were useless because I had clear sight at all the possible areas where people could be coming. So I didn't need to stop. I could still be safe. I could decide. What does the Department of Transportation know? They've only studied and thought about these things. I am driving in the car right now and know good and well that I don't need them. So I would just roll through these stop signs on my way to school in the mornings. And one morning, I was on the way to an evangelism exam. <laughs> and I was rolling through, and I thought, is that a, like a suburban that looks like a cop car parked way down there in front? Ah, uh, no. That's just out in front of somebody's house. So I went ahead and ran that stop sign, and then I went ahead and ran the other one. <laughs> and then I met the flashing lights. <laughs> yes, officer, I'm going to learn about Jesus, and that we, we don't need stop signs but <laughs> so you see with the civil laws you're just trying not to get caught you want to justify yourself it's just stupid that there's a stop sign there <laughs> but there is and so if you break the law, that's the law you've got to pay the fine or go to a silly course with comedians teaching you about traffic safety
1: <laughs>
0: same difference, paying a fine it was quite a fine So there's this civil use of the law that says there are all these laws that we want to put in place. And what they do is they restrain evil in the world. They serve a very good purpose because there are a lot of things that people won't do because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to pay a fine. That's why you slow down if you think there might be a cop around. Or Some of you just actually obey the speed limit I've heard. I'm I'm trying to do that these days because I have a son learning to drive. And it feels a little funny for me to keep saying to him, hey, what I'm about to do, don't you ever do. <laughs> Father of the year. <laughs> so s- there's a civil use of the law, but there's this also coming from this particular passage here where the apostle says, before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up until faith should be revealed, until this new era should be revealed, until this new arrangement with God to be revealed. So, the law was put in charge, or the law was like a guardian. It was like a tutor. It was like a pedagogue. That's the word in Greek. To lead us to Christ. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. This is what's called the pedagogical use of the law, but that's stupid. We're inaccessible to us. We don't talk like that. So, there's a use of the law. That God has given that serves His purposes in working in conjunction with His promises. His promises says, I'm going to bless the world through you. That's a very gracious thing. This law says, given the kind of people you are. Given the kind of tendencies you have. given Given the kind of natural allergies and misinterpretations of God that you are prone to. I'm going to have to put you under the tutelage of this elaborate system of learning what being a human is. So I'll tell you, don't have any other gods before me because, of course, that's all you want to do is have other gods before me. You want to make everything in your life more important than me. Well, that's not what being human is. You want to make your desires your identity. That's not what being human is. I determine your identity. You don't get to determine it. And it's sure not determined by your sexual desires or your your own wishes. That doesn't make an identity. I make identities. You have an identity. Your identity. You're the image of God. Here's how the image of God, a human, is supposed to live. But what he knew was going to happen is that as you and as Israel was under the tutelage of this, they were children, and their lives were very difficult. There were a whole lot of things that you had to do to stay clean. To be able to come to worship. You had to make sacrifices. You had to, you had to make sure that you weren't around any blood and you didn't touch any mildew. Good luck if you're living in the South. How are you ever going to get to church? Mildew everywhere. You can't let polyester and cotton mix and stuff like that. You've got to stay clean. It was a very onerous system. But God was trying to teach them something. He was trying to teach them something by saying, here's how comprehensive the law is. It's a mirror. It's a mirror that you look in and say, oh my gosh, I have way more blemishes than I ever imagined. Oh my gosh, I have pieces of kale sticking in my teeth. Oh my gosh, I'm much worse than I ever thought I was. The law is a hammer. The law is a tutor. And then... This ancient world, the idea of a tutor, this guardian, this custodian this this au pair that's how we we don't say it here like that this kind of nanny, babysitter person's job was to discipline the child, was often stern, was often cool getting the child to school, getting the child where it's supposed to be, making sure the child didn't mess up, stop it stop it, stop that stop that it was a continual stop that. And the apostle says, The law has been put in place. You were locked up under stop that. You were locked up until faith came. The law was supposed to create depression in you. So if you've ever thought about obeying God and found yourself really discouraged, then the law did what it was supposed to do. If you've ever thought about obeying God and, and at the end of the day thought, I wonder if I've obeyed enough. The law tells me to be honest. I wonder if I've been honest enough. The law tells me to honor my parents. Have I honored my parents enough to, to keep the Sabbath? Have I, honored, have I kept the Sabbath ever? I mean, enough to love God with all of God. Have I loved Him at all or enough? And even for Christians, you can implement even the ways of coming to Christ. We're supposed to repent and believe. Am I repenting enough? We're supposed to confess our sins. Have I confessed enough? We're supposed to believe, but do I believe enough? Do you see what happens? And the apostle would answer all those questions. Okay, those are interesting questions. Those are questions that you should have You should have had dealt with before Christ. Because all of those questions misunderstand entirely how it is that you are in relationship with God. All of those questions are meant to drive you insane and drive you into despair. So that you will run to Jesus for him to say, I've been enough. I've kept the law. It's as if, by your faith in me, you've kept it now too. It's as if I've been punished for you, and now you wear my medals, says Tim Keller, on your lapel. The honor that is conferred to me is owed now to you because of my work. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for you who are baptized the Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You're wearing Jesus now if you have faith. And faith is not a thing of you've got to have more of it or less. Even a tiny amount, we're told. It's, it's, just, it's just empty hands by which you receive some. And as you receive this, what will happen is you'll start to find a different way of keeping God's law. Because God cares about His law. He's given us this civil use. He's given us this, this, this other use which meant to drive us to despair and lead us to Christ. But He's given us this third use which is after the law whips us it inspires us. It says this is a picture of how lovely you're to be as you want to please your father. But first, something's got to happen inside of you. I was at the Hinkle Park one day, the Hinkle Community Center park where the track is, and there there were some kids from Fairland School where my son goes and many of your kids go. And they had a little snafu with a bicycle. The chain had popped off the sprocket there. And here I was a grown man, and so they said, hey, can you help us fix, they knew I was Anders' dad, that's how I'm known in those parts, in these, all parts, there's a video of me going off a zip line, another day, (laughs) secretly cursing and praying at the same time, and on the video it says, hey, Anders' dad, go Anders' dad, (laughs) and so as I was walking, and I noticed these boys, and they knew who I was, and I, I knew some of them. They asked for my help in f- fixing their bike. And so they didn't know very much about me, so I pretended that I was going to be able to help them. <laughs> and so I started looking at it. And I said, You're, uh, your combobulator busted on this thing. Uh, no, but I actually could tell. I can fix a bike, kind of. But I could tell that I was going to have to take off the back wheel. There was, no, there was not enough room for tension in the, in the chain to get the sprocket back on. It wasn't one of those easy release wheels. So I said, buddy, I'm thinking I'm going to have to take the wheel off, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have, to have a wrench to do that. He goes, well, can't you just go get it out your car? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I actually don't have a wrench in my car. And he said, well, don't you work? <laughs> I slithered off to the side. and said just, just, the, just the one day a week. In his mind, it wasn't an illegitimate question. I now have at least a screwdriver in my car in case anything ever comes up. Anybody ever needs like a plate on a light switch unscrewed and screwed back on? Boom! I'm your man got a flathead and a Phillips. (laughs) But in his mind, there was only one way to work. I should have a truck. I was already in a state of deficit because of that. I drove a Toyota Camry. I mean, and I don't work, and I don't have a wrench, and I mean, if I had one, you know, who knows? But he only envisioned one way of working. He envisioned one right way of working, but only one way. He didn't realize there were way more ways to working than that. And what the Apostle wants you to see is there's a whole other way of relating to God's law and to God. And it comes to this idea of receiving promises first. Of saying, I can't relate to God's law as something I must keep or else. I relate to God's law as something that drives me to the one who has kept the law for me. And now, by my placing my trust in Him, I get to be a whole different kind of person. And He sends this spirit into my heart that calls out, Abba, Father, and so I'm no longer a slave, but a son. And since a the son, then I'm an heir to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, we just sang. Changes a slave into a child in duty... Into choice. The apostle wants you to know a whole different way of relating to God. To say the law had its purpose. The primary purpose of it was to to show you up. So that you would run to one who would give you mercy. So if you find yourself saying, am I doing enough? Am I loving enough? Am I confessing enough? Am I repenting enough? The way out of that is not to try to answer that question. The way out of that is to say, this is a stupid kind of self-conversation to have. I need somebody to set me free entirely. I need somebody who's been really good on my behalf. I need Christ. To believe it at first might be terrifying. I will tell you, on that, this field trip I was on last week, our group was first on the zip line. I thought I had made it out without having to do it. All the kids were doing it. I was quite sure the little tiny platform that was about six by six, about 60 feet up in the air on the skinny telephone pole with, like, uh, staples, aluminum staples that you climbed up. I thought, there's no way it's going to hold a 600-pound man. <laughs> And so we got to the end and everybody had gone. I'd done my part. I'd helped out. I'd done I'd cheer lead and taken videos and helped with the lays and whatever. And they were like, okay, Eric, you're going. It's time. Church, Right, you're up. <laughs> I <was> like, what? <laughs> and I said, Hey, how, that little platform up there, how much weight can that thing hold? And they were like we don't know, it's a lot. We don't know, it's a lot, says the 122-pound man who was sitting up there. So the bear starts climbing up the tree. There's video of all this. I was, I was fine climbing, and I went fast. And you can tell in the video, I'll get about halfway, and they're like, you're halfway there. It seems like I've been climbing on the video for three and a half hours. That seemed really high. When I got up there, the dude's like having to get me off of one set of ropes to another. I'm just standing there, and I turn around, and I'm on this little platform that's about the size of my footprint. And I'm stuck. What am I going to do now? I can't cry for my mom. <laughs> my son just did this. A bunch of little 11 year olds just did this without incident. I can't go back down. I mean, I could throw the guy next to me off, but that wouldn't help me from the terror I'm feeling. Because I have learned to hate the falling sensation. In fact, I didn't even have to learn it. I just hated it. I just knew how to hate it. Something physiological happens to me when I'm standing on a footprint that high up in the air my palms start sweating just telling you the story. I might have to sit down in a minute. (laughs) But there was this moment where I realized it's only going to be this terrifying for about three more seconds because I don't mind the moving. I don't mind the fast moving. I can do it know, a roller coaster. I just don't want to fall. So I thought, all right, Lord. This is what I have to do sometimes. All right, Lord. You know, kind of like, well, which of us, by learning can add a single moment to our lives, even, I guess, if we're jumping off a stupid platform? So I just closed my eyes, tried not to cuss, and said, all right, Lord, here we go. Have mercy. And I jumped. And the thing caught. I thought it was going to rip my spine out.
1: <laughs> but there was a
0: kind of terror for me. And leaving the safety of the ground. And I think there's a kind of terror when you're used, even as a religious person, when you're used to thinking, I've got to do what God wants me to do or else. There's a kind of way of obeying that's very slavish. A servile, as the old saints would say, a servile obedience which will make you very anxious, it will make you very angry, it makes you mad at other people who seem to be getting by without keeping all the rules that you're keeping. You're keeping all the rules, but you're making everybody, including yourself, miserable in the doing of it. You're touchy, you're nervous, you never know if you're doing it enough or rightly enough. And if someone comes and says, hey, Uh, Why don't you just stop that? "Uh, I don't know if I can. What if God gets me? Well, you gotta jump. You gotta jump off of that. You gotta see if He'll catch you. You gotta see if it's your father. If you're running off of the the stones in the front yard, as my kids used to do, and they just leapt because they knew I was going to catch them down there you got to jump from the comfort of it, from the, the, the anxious comfort of saying, I'm going to do the right things, I'm going to make God like me, I'm going to stay in his favor. And you have to deal with the discomfort of saying, wait well, a you know, no, that isn't the way. It's like an OCD person saying, I'm not going to flick the light switch. I'm just going to try not to flick the light switch and see if the house burns down or not, like I think it will if I don't. I just have to see. I have to find out. That's what faith is. It's finding out. And as you find out, you know what you find out? You find out there's a whole new level of joy. There's a whole new level of freedom. There's a whole new level of at-easement. There's a whole new level of of laughter. There's a whole new level, a way of being with people. You start to realize, yeah, we really are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean those distinctions have gone away in the world. They mean they don't matter in terms of our relationship to God and each other. All of a sudden, I see you and you see me as people who have been acted on by God, and all people who couldn't be good enough. all people who are like kids born into your family or adopted into your family where your prior decision says, I'm going to love you and you can't make me not. And even if you ride the ripstick in the house, and I ask you not to and you keep on doing it, and I ask you not to and you keep on doing it again, and even if you throw balls in the house incessantly, even though I've told you not to, and I tell you again, you keep doing it. And even if you don't come to supper on time, You still get to be my kid. You start to learn. Oh, I want to listen to this father. He means good for me. He wants to make something of me. He knows what kind of person I'm meant to be. And he's going to do it. He puts his life in us. His spirit. The spirit of his son. Starts to take up residence in us. So that all of a sudden... We can start to want what we're supposed to want. The problem of kale gets solved. God says, give away your money. And suddenly you find like a space Martian that the spirit of God is in. And you think, you know what? I actually like doing that. God says, love the poor. And you find yourself increasingly saying, huh, I don't think they're icky anymore. Like I like doing this. You find yourself wanting to please God because his spirit is moving you to walk in his ways. I close with this. The babies give me a sign. Have you seen the Patriot long ago movie? Where our crazy friend Mel Gibson plays Benjamin Martin, At the time of the Revolutionary War, a reluctant farmer in these colonial times, who's who's reluctantly dragged into a colonial militia when his son is killed by these crazy red coats who are trying to take his farm. And he comes back from war for a brief little time, and he's trying to say goodbye to his little daughter, Susan, who will not speak to him. She's afraid of him. She thinks he's a monster. And he says to her as he... Is about to go back into war. He gets down on his knees, and he says with the intensity that is the only way he speaks. Goodbye,
1: Susan. Goodbye.
0: And she steps back, and she trembles, and she guards. And he says, okay. And he's visibly shaken, and he's deeply distressed, because this one that he longs for will not speak to him. And as he takes to the beach on his horse with his colleague, and they start to ride off back to meet the other men in the militia, this little girl comes running after him. Little blonde-headed thing, probably six years old. And she starts to scream. This formerly mute girl, this terrified little girl starts to yell out with confidence: Papa!
1: Papa, don't go!
0: And she runs, and when he hears her voice, he turns, and he runs to meet her. And he throws down on his knees and scoops her up, and she says, Papa, don't go. I'll say anything. Don't go. And you know what's so beautiful? As she calls out, Papa. He doesn't say, why haven't you been speaking to me? What's wrong with you? Don't you see I'm nice? his eyes popping out. And his carotid arteries bulging. Like, yeah. He can do that, you see. But he doesn't say any of that. You know what he does? He scoops her up. And he says, Susan. Susan. You make me so very happy. What? This girl who was terrified of him? Who was afraid of him? Who tried to move away from him? She suddenly just called out his name and ran to him. And he said, you make me so very happy? yes. Anybody who's a parent, anybody who's loved, anybody who's known God knows exactly what he's talking about. And if you want to be rightly related to God's law, you have to realize that God's put his spirit in you. And it makes you cry out. When you find the urge to say, Father, will you father me? Father, please don't go. Father, will you clean me up again? Father, will you make me new again? Father, will you give me an identity that won't change based on how I happen to feel today or what I'm able to accomplish or not? Father, will you be my father, my papa, my daddy? And he says, that makes me so very happy. Under the tutelage of the Savior, you get driven out of any kind of self-righteousness. You get weaned off of any sense that you can be enough. And you find a new way of working. Which starts with believing. It culminates in calling out, Abba, Father. Which gives you the freedom of heart that hears God saying to you and meaning it. You make me so very happy. Blessed is the one who believes that God's happy when you call out to Him. You'll keep calling for a long, long time.
1: Amen.